In My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter 7, read by Nick Scott. Our group of pilgrims are visiting the ancient Western Buddhist kingdoms of Tibet before continuing their pilgrimage to Holy Man Kailash. Nick hopes this stop will be an opportunity to recover from mountain sickness. Chapter 7 The Spiritual and the Profane Looking back, my time in Tibet before the Kora around Mount Kailash was mostly pleasant, except for the nights. Not sleeping like that, oscillating from dull, dreamy states through restless overheating to a mind zinging with energy, happens to mountain climbers bivouacking on the side of Everest. It also happens to anyone, like me, suffering mountain sickness. Sharing a room made it harder. I feared disturbing my companions with my restless movement or getting up too often to sit in meditation until the pull of the bed had me lying down again. So I'd feel trapped. Eventually I'd revolt and break out of the room. Sitting outside in the cold would usually help. I had so much energy in the middle of the first night in tolling, I managed a full hour of yoga, every posture I knew, out in the yard under the stars. Nights like that left me completely drained the next day. But fortunately, I was doing nothing demanding. If anything, my vacant state helped me enjoy them. The second night I tried staying put, lying listening to the laboured breathing of my two lay companions. Around three o'clock I opened a window. As the fresh cold air flowed in, their breathing quietened. My breathing became easier too, but not enough to join them in the yearned-for cocoon of sleep. Instead, I was now listening to karaoke singing again, but distant this time, as we were not in the Chinese part of this town. It was always one man singing along badly to a series of Chinese pop songs. I spent much of the remaining night wondering at the oddness of that. I since discovered Chinese soldiers use karaoke booths, each of which has a Tibetan hostess. It's their modern way with prostitution. Down-market geishas. I now have the sad reflection that perhaps those two young women I've been circling the stupa with the night before, all dressed up, were on their way to a karaoke bar. As the trilling of birds started and dawn crept into the room, I stole out to follow the warm path to the cliff. 
Ahead of me walked an old man, nattily dressed in black jacket and trousers, a wide dark brimmed trilby hat, maroon cardigan and bright yellow shirt, the colours designating his spiritual intent. I'd seen him the evening before with the jacket off and tied jauntily over one shoulder. He was slightly bow-legged and gently rocked side to side as he walked, one hand working dangling brown marla beads, counting the mantras he was murmuring. It seemed a lovely way to start and end each day. Only older Tibetans were on the cliff that morning. My old chap continued along the cliff's edge while I sat down on a small pile of stones amidst the fluttering prayer flags and gazed blearily out over the river valley, now filling with light. Two old ladies came by, smiling and nodding, followed by another old man working his marla beads, who also nodded a greeting. Then came a tourist, Japanese or Korean, with a large sophisticated camera and other equipment hanging about his neck, looking to use the morning light. There was no friendly acknowledgement from him. Instead, he stopped to correct me. This is Buddhist religion place, not to be sitting. He pointed at my pile of stones. I smiled wanly and shrugged. I was just too tired and the locals didn't seem to mind. Sure enough, the next woman placed a stone on a larger pile nearby, smiled broadly, and nodded to me. They'd seen far worse sacrilege than me sitting on a little pile of stone. The devotion of the older Tibetans reminded me of the west of Ireland, when I first visited in the early 80s. Old people there were pious in the same simple and cheerful way, taking solace from physical acts, walking the stations of the cross at pilgrimage sites while reciting the creed, climbing up to special outdoor services in their Sunday best, even in the rain. They also often used rosaries to count their prayers. Still today, hundreds of thousands of Irish are St. Cropatrick, not at all an easy climb, many of them barefooted. Ireland also has the same collective memory of its early saints, those who first came and practised the religion. In Tibet, it is Milirepa, Guru Rinpoche and others, and the numerous venerated caves they are supposed to have lived in. In Ireland, it's the Christian saints of the 5th and 6th century and their remote islands. Sailing boats still dip their sails when they pass one of these now uninhabited islands near to us in Galway. There are patterns for each saint's feast day where many boatloads go out to venerate the saint. The grander mainland monasteries of later monastics are far more obvious in the landscape, but not given the same veneration. Only archaeologists and historians are interested in them. I suspect it's the quality of those early saints' practice. The first, as with Milarepa, must be exceptional beings to take on a life like that when it's a new religion. I took Ajahn Samedo to an Irish monastic island 
my favourite, Kaha, which sits out in the Atlantic some way off the inhabited Inish Turk. It has sixth-century upright stone slabs with crosses carved into them, standing on each slight rise, so that it looks rather like Easter Island in the Pacific with its standing idols. There are the remains of a small chapel, one gable still standing with a narrow arch window and a few circles in the turf that archaeologists say were once monastic cells. There is rough grass, nesting birds and the Atlantic waves breaking on the cliffs. There is also the most powerful sense of vocation. Ajahn Samedo was so moved that he cried as we crossed back to the mainland. Stan, who was with us, took him back later that year to spend five days there on retreat. The shrine room at Tertapuri had some of that powerful sense of practice for me. But the desecrated Bodhisattva shrine rooms at Toling Monastery didn't. With them, I felt only sadness. Both had been recently restored. Toling shrine rooms also had bare new plaster, new support columns and repaired roofs. But here the improvements felt as pointless as making a fuss over cardboard boxes which once held splendid gifts. I suspect that's because of their original function, to impress. Damarako pointed out how all the shrines faced onto the same large roof space where there had been a central large Buddha image, of which there was now only the knees and feet, and how this arrangement had formed a life-size three-dimensional mandala, with each of the bodhisattvas at the appropriate place, according to Mahayana teachings. Tantric initiates and devotees would have been led here in awe by the monks. He was excited by this discovery. But for me, all that Tibetan elaboration of the Buddha's original simple teachings with its complicated imagery has never really worked. It was the little piles of dusty banknotes before each empty space that moved me the most. Damaraka was also upset by the pathetic remnants of the original statues, commenting that at the Tasparang temples, there was a sign saying the destruction was done by the Cultural Revolution and how Chinese archaeologists were now restoring the shrines, as if they were not all the same communism. But I felt more in tune with Ajahn Amro's more reflective response. Until the Greeks invaded India, the Buddha was never represented in form. The Red Guard's removal of the images, just leaving defined spaces, has in fact created a more accurate representation. All that proliferation, built up over the centuries, had been swept away. The rising and ceasing of conditioned form is also in line with the Buddha's teaching. 
The murals at the Tasparang temples, which I missed, are famous and were the principal reason Stephen Batchelor had wanted us to visit Gorje. In Morocco, he told us. Lama Govinda's book, Way of the White Clouds, which we all read in the 1970s, culminates in his visit to Tasparang. So I've always wanted to see the original frescoes he made copies of over his month spent there. They are of a period which has disappeared elsewhere in Tibet, a school of art which had its origins in Kashmir, and they connect to the original depiction in the great Indian monasteries. It seems incredibly romantic, if you read about it anyway. These breathtakingly beautiful locations, high desert with innumerable gorges, with the ruined remains of these two old cities providing a repository of this extraordinary art. It also seems wonderful now writing about it. But at the time, I was in no state to appreciate that level of subtlety. Lama Govinda had yearned to see Tasparang, and it was the principal aim of his expeditions into Tibet after the Second World War in which his pilgrimage round Mount Kailash only warrants one chapter against Tasparang's five. Although Govinda first took ordination as a Theravadan monk, he was then drawn to study the mystery and magic of the Tibetan teachings, a tradition in which, conveniently, he could also marry and retain the title of Lama. He was an exotic character, half German, half Peruvian, in a 1950s photo, he strikes an amazing pose in front of the London Buddhist Society with his spiritual consort, Lee Gotomi, beside him. His extremely long goatee beard descends from a face framed in a pointed llama hat and covers the front of his flowing, self-styled Tibetan robes, while she is in a flowered, patterned silk Tibetan dress. Govinda's description of Tibet and the Tibetan teachings can be equally flamboyant. Stephen told me as monks they used to refer to his book as Head in White Clouds. The temple that did affect me was the oldest one at Toli, known as the Red Temple, but once the monastery's main assembly hall, which we'd been shown around on the first day. After we toured the mandala of empty boxes, I asked Dorje if the Red Temple's big double doors could be opened again. He departed to get permission, and eventually an old monk returned with a bunch of giant keys hanging from one hand. He was short and wide, with big bushy grey eyebrows, and his grey hair cropped short, rather than shaven, in the Tibetan monastic style. His maroon outer robe, thrown over his shoulder, was dusty. Maybe he'd come from working somewhere. He unlocked the double doors which creaked as he swung them back, then settled down on a cushion placed just inside. We ventured into the dim interior, each choosing to sit against one of the many pillars, enjoying both the silence and the coolness after the hot afternoon outside. After five minutes, a jingle announced the Tibetan monk's mobile phone starting up. We then had to listen to a series of his calls, 
each time with a faint female response. But it didn't seem to matter. The powerful silence was able to hold it all. We returned to the hostel after that, where our two rooms could be such contrasting places. The day before, when I returned from my early morning on the cliff, I found the monks were pottering about after their morning meditation, while in our room Chris was just stirring and Rory, as usual, had to be woken. This time I returned for a discussion in our room about what was for sale in the local Chinese shops and whether we could afford some plain chocolate for the monks. Our budget was now very tight. To then visit the monks' room, where Damarako was talking intensely about the seven secret places where the Buddha's teachings are said to reside in Tibet. Or something like that. Then back in our room, the TV was now on, showing a Chinese football game. We think it's an under-21 international, Chris told me as I settled down to watch. We left the hostel after a breakfast of noodles and soup, our little minibus driving down and out across the valley into the vast, empty landscape, heading towards the stepped cliffs of hardened sediment on the far side. Those cliffs towered over us as our minibus climbed, winding back and forth through gorges and out around peninsulas, on our way back to the main road that circles western Tibet. This time I had enough vitality to pay attention to the amazing scenery and even to ask Dorji if we could stop so that we could stretch our legs, cramped from sitting on seats designed for small Asians, and take in the spectacular views. Rory and I also got a better look at the few small flowering plants. Seen from the minibus, they looked like spots of paint sprinkled across a Jackson Pollock painting. While the others stood gazing at the amazing formations around us, we squatted on our haunches to peer at a tiny rock plant that seemed little more than a moss, but was covered in minute white and yellow flowers. Later we passed a view we'd stopped for on the way there looking south across a myriad of valleys sharply eaten into the soft sedimentary rock to the distant line of the snow-covered Himalayas. From the height of the Tibetan plain, the Himalayan peaks were not up there, as they seem from India or Nepal, but a jagged white lip jutting up from the edge of what we stood on. Rory had reckoned the most prominent and highest peak must be K2, the second highest in the world. But on the way back, having realised where the river Sutledge broke through, he'd decided it was Nanda Devi, the highest peak in India. Before this view, at the point where the land in front of us fell away, previous travellers had built small towers of single flat stones balanced on each other as an offering to it. 
There was also a cairn of piled stones covered with white silk carter scarves. At our next stop, at a slight pass in the rolling hills before we descended to the upper Indus Valley, the pile of rocks was the height of the minibus and completely cocooned in white. Tibet has a landscape that engenders awe and respect, even now with tarmac roads and petrol vehicles. How much more significant such passes and views must have seemed to those crossing this high-altitude desert on horse or foot. It took four months then. That's how long Father Ippolitu de Sidri spent providing Europe with its first proper account of Tibet. He and his companion were Jesuits, like Father Andrande, who visited Tasparang, but on a later mission in 1715, this time to Lhasa. Unlike Andrande, Father Desidri was a great linguist and scholar, and it was he who first understood that Buddhism had no connection with Christianity, but was a very sophisticated set of teachings, the subtlety of which he greatly admired, while nonetheless still seeing it as the work of the devil. His wonderful book, A Mission to Tibet, supplemented with a letter written by his companion, describes their epic journey from Goa via Agra to Kashmir, then over the mountains into Ladakh, and from there beside the upper Indus to the small outpost of Tashigang, to the northwest of where our little minibus now joined the main road of western Tibet. Getting to Tashigang had taken them over a year and was difficult enough, but once there they discovered the small outpost was the mouth and entrance to a vast frigid wasteland, and we could find no guides willing to take us. Eventually, the head lama of the local monastery, who'd enjoyed debating theology with them, secured the protection of a widowed Mughal princess who was passing on her way back to Lhasa with her husband's soldiers. Without her help, they'd never have made it. They crossed in midwinter, sleeping outside, wrapped in sheepskins, as their tents were impossible to erect with the strong winds and frozen ground. Each evening, they gathered yak dung to fuel fires for melting snow. Crossing in summer was impossible, they reported, because there was no water. But in winter, there was only the poor fodder for their horses carried on yaks. Their own party had seven horses. Only two made it to Lhasa, and one of them died two days later. Father Freye, the companion, would have died too if the princess hadn't sent her soldiers back to find him one night, huddled for warmth beside his dead horse. Father Desidri's description of the Tibet he found on the other side of the desert is fascinating. The vast university monasteries with thousands of monks seem exactly the same as those described later by Chandra Das, sent as a spy by the British in 1879, 
and by Alexandra David Neal, who travelled through Tibet in 1924, disguised as a monk. The monasteries changed so little because Tibet was a deeply conservative society, totally inward-looking, kept that way by those same monasteries. Institutional religion can do that to society when it has too much power. Father Desiree was deeply impressed with the life of study at the monasteries. But then, as a Jesuit mixing with the top of the monastic hierarchy, that's not surprising. Alexandra David Neal, who was a socialist as well as a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, was not. She was shocked at how little real religious practice she saw, other than rites and rituals, and reckoned the monasteries were oppressors of the people. She even welcomed the invasion by the communist Chinese when it happened at the end of her life. The last reports we have of the old monasteries are the romantic descriptions of Lama Govinda, after which the Chinese closed Tibet to all outsiders. Tibet didn't open again for 30 years. When it did, in 1986, Stephen Batchelor, recently disrobed as a Buddhist monk, was beginning a visit to China with Martine, who was about to become his wife. We'd posted the barns in Hong Kong and had to wait a month, so we went into China looking for old Chan monasteries. Once there, we heard Tibet had just been opened, so we booked a flight to Lhasa. You spoke Tibetan. Yes, that made it incredibly moving. They were speechless when they realised. I was invited into so many people's homes. They told us their personal stories. It was terrible, heartrending, what they'd all gone through. One thing I was really struck by was how they felt abandoned by the Tibetans who'd escaped to India. I told him how we'd found the same in Latvia when I was there after the fall of the Soviet Union with Ajahn Viridamo, who spoke Latvian. The peasants were left to suffer under the communists, while the ones with money had all fled. Yes, except in Tibet the monks had no money, but they had the savvy and connections to leave. And of course the aristocracy with the money escaped too. It was extremely interesting. They were also telling me, look, don't blame the Chinese. The Tibetans were just as involved in this. Really? Yes, of course. The Chinese released a whole layer of frustration and rage against the oppression by the ruling class, including the monasteries. It's understandable. The average Tibetan had a miserable existence. The communist cadres included Tibetans who wanted to see the back of the aristocracy, the back of a feudal society, and of a life where they were bonded labour. But if I mention this to the free Tibet people, they say I'm just trotting out Chinese propaganda. But what they went through was absolutely awful. I'm not denying that. I spoke to a Tibetan monk who'd spent 25 years in a labour camp. 
I visited Sara Monastery, where my teacher came from and whose tradition I trained in. There the Chinese had recently allowed monks again, so there were lots of little kids and only a handful of really old monks. All the middle generations had been completely wiped out. That was really sad. They even asked me to teach them. Stephen made several trips out of Lhasa. The Chinese supposedly didn't allow you beyond the city boundaries, but there was no way of policing it, and the Tibetans were perfectly happy to take you wherever you wanted. So there was Bradley Mayhew and Victor Chang, who just took off with a backpack and hiked all through that region. They were the first in the modern era to do the Kora around Mount Kailash. And we did the same, just took off. They went to Gandam Monastery, where Stephen's Golukpa tradition originated, and which is one of its three great university monasteries. There, the Chinese told the locals they could help themselves to all the building materials. The local Tibetans told me that. Of course, it's difficult to be certain from this distance in time, and many argue now that the Chinese forced the Tibetans to tear down the monasteries, to rub their faces in the destruction of their own culture, which I wouldn't put past the communist Chinese. But you still have to accept the enormous resentment against the monasteries, the biggest landowners in a feudal society. Peasants were not paid, they were owned. They had to have permission to leave the estates. On our trip through western Tibet, I asked our guide, Dorje, if the Tibetans had been involved in the destruction of their own monasteries, and if they'd done it freely, as Stephen had suggested. Sure, of course, they wanted a new life. But then Dorje wouldn't have been born then. Stephen's visit to Tibet was, in effect, the completion of his disillusionment with Tibetan Buddhism, the story of which he gave us as we travelled in Morocco. He said the most difficult part was leaving his teacher. Geshe Raptum was the reason I lasted so long. He was a farm boy from eastern Tibet, the eldest son in Tibetan culture, where it's only the second son who goes to the monastery. The eldest is expected to take care of the father in old age. But at 19 he ran away to become a monk, crossing Tibet by foot from Yam to Lhasa. Because he didn't have his family's support, he had no benefactor, so he got malnutrition in the monastery, which gave him diabetes in later life. That's what ended up killing him. He was a very good scholar, very bright. Eventually he became the tutor of a young Tolku, one of the reincarnated lamas, and once he got that position, he was taken care of. He escaped to India with the Tolku, and there he was appointed as the Dalai Lama's philosophical advisor, which means his debating partner. How was he with those Goenka Vipassana retreats we did? He had no problem with me doing them. He admired Theravada, particularly the way the Thai and Burmese monks kept the Vinaya. He was very strict himself, 
He didn't handle money, refused to take any charges for the courses he taught, was never alone in a room with a woman. That was extremely unusual for a Tibetan monk. He never gave tantric initiations either, even refused to give us the Bodhisattva vow. According to the Tibetan tradition, if you give the vow to another and then they break it, then they and you go to hell. So he was not your average Tibetan Lama. When Westerners first came to Dharamsala, he was on a long solitary retreat in a hut on the hillside. When he came out, the Dalai Lama asked him to teach us. Most Lamas, if they do those long retreats, don't do them to find enlightenment, as he did, but to gain merit, or some kind of tantric power, or to see them through bardo at death. But he was never critical of anything in the tradition. He had complete unquestioning faith and took it all at face value. What was different and so important for me was he didn't pretend he was some great tantric lama or whatever, like most of them do. Did he die while you were in Korea? No, no, I came back from Korea when I heard he'd got cancer and he was still alive when I later returned with Martine. We saw him together in Switzerland, but he died that same year. One's teacher. Stephen already had his when we met on the Vipassana retreat, but it was another four years before I found mine. First, I had to become sufficiently disillusioned with the Goenka tradition. If anything, I was more sceptical than Stephen then. I was simply interested in exploring the states of mind those courses produced. I tried to ignore the constant emphasis on the purity of the practice and the sect-like rules about who one practiced meditation with. But eventually my disquiet became too much and I had to look elsewhere, initially to Zen, which is what Stephen did next. The charm practice in Korea was very helpful for me. The emphasis on sitting meditation and the simple practice of just questioning. But I still had difficulty with the Asian mindset, which actually still did not question the orthodoxy of their tradition, even though Chan arose from questioning orthodoxy. When their Korean master died a year later and his collection of Western disciples started to dissipate, Stephen sent a note to Martine, the most senior of them, asking if she'd marry him. She accepted by return note and they agreed to leave separately and meet in Hong Kong to avoid any sense of scandal. The two of them have now become well-known Buddhist teachers themselves and Stephen is a Buddhist theologian whose theology is based on his sceptical approach. I find it ironic that in the 40 years we've known each other, we seem to have swapped sides. When we met, he was starting his monastic training in the Tibetan tradition, which is crammed full of the irrational and superstitious, while I practiced in a secular tradition and was returning to England to train as a rational scientist. 
we'd occasionally hear from each other in our very different worlds through mutual friends. Today, he proclaims secular Buddhism as a path, and there are fundamental aspects of the Buddhist teaching which he dismisses, including rebirth and the notion that anyone, including the Buddha, could be completely enlightened. While I've now seen too much that I can't explain rationally to dismiss such things. But I really welcome the way Stephen encourages us to question everything. I was fortunate eventually to find a teacher who questioned it all himself. Even in the early days, there would be resistance from other monastics to some of the things Ajahn Sumedho said and did, like talking openly of states such as the unconditioned, emptiness, deathless and even nirvana as something to be experienced rather than worshipped. He also encouraged us to see religious convention simply as form to be seen through rather than something to embrace or resist. I remember a year or two after we set up a little branch monastery in northeast England, Ajahn Samedo came to visit with some of the other western monks. They were going on from there to stay for several days at a Cistercian monastery in Scotland. Over breakfast in the small shrine room, he suggested that whilst there they should follow the Cistercian monastic conventions, rather than insisting on their own. Their form is just as strict as ours. It's just different. Actually, I think all he was proposing was that they eat their lunch with the community, rather than asking for theirs to be served slightly earlier even though that might mean eating past noon when Theravadan Buddhist monks are not meant to eat. There was complete silence as the others considered this. I suspect that's why one of them, now Ajahn Suchito, but then a junior monk, refused to go. But I appreciated that adaptability. It was not that Ajahn Sumedho was lax. I remember managing a retreat he was teaching back then. The afternoon coffee we'd been leaving in his room was left untouched, even though he really enjoyed coffee. So I was sent to ask why. He explained we hadn't offered it to him, which meant by strict interpretation of his Vinaya, he could not assume it was his, or even ask. In Tibet, Ajahn Amaro agreed to my suggestion that they continue to follow Nepalese time in working out midday, when they had to eat by. Tibet being on Peking time, several hours out of sync with the sun. But there would be no other compromise, which was something he made very clear to Dorje several times. That's why we set out early that morning for tolling on the next leg of our journey back to Mount Kailash, as there was only one place to eat that day. Monza, the small scattering of homesteads on the empty desert plain, with pass going the other way. We ate at a restaurant painted in bright colours, with a large sign above the door proclaiming its name, Peace Tibetan Meal. 
Dorji translated the limited choice of dishes listed by the middle-aged female proprietor. We opted for Tibetan noodle stew again. Large bowls with flat, floppy noodles, handmade, I suspect, floating in a stew of minced meat and a few vegetables. Dorji and the driver had a similar stew, but with misshapen lumps of dough in it. With this, they ate slices carved with their own large knives from the hunk of dried mutton the driver produced at each meal. Tibetan food is not subtle and understandably based on meat. Our vegetarians just got the few vegetables in their stew, but Damaraka was very happy. I cycled across Ireland last year, coast to coast, from County Down to County Galway, using the smallest country lanes shown on the ordnance survey maps I carried. Just inside Galway, I stopped to look in a graveyard, where my map indicated some kind of abbey. I found an old ruined church, common in the west of Ireland, where the Catholic religion was horribly persecuted by the Protestant Cromwellians. These were iconoclasts, like the Red Guards, also imposing their cultural revolution on a foreign land and destroying everything religious they could find. I called out to two elderly men working at the far end of the graveyard. Was there an information board? They made their way slowly over to where I was standing, looking puzzled. There's a list of the graves in the community centre. No, no, I mean this old church. Do you know anything about it? No, nothing like that. Well, who's that? I indicated an outline carving on an upright stone. St. Patrick? Why, that's St. Kirill. St. Kirill? You don't know St. Kirill? He was really surprised. This was his monastery, and this townland is Clon Clen Kirill. And he proceeded to tell me how at the time of St. Patrick, which was the late 5th century, there had been a monastery founded here by St. Kirill, and that the raised flat oblong bench in front of me was St. Kirill's bed, on which every coffin to be buried in the graveyard had to first rest but never on a Monday. There's no burying on a Monday. Why ever not? Because it was a Monday when St. Carol fell out with St. Connell, who had his monastery over there. He pointed vaguely to the southeast. I assumed at the time that St. Carol must be a famous Irish saint I'd not heard of. But when I later asked my Irish friends, all of who lived less than 20 miles away, none had heard of him, only of the strange name of the townland. Maybe I'm being romantic to think the locals still remember St. Carroll today because of the quality of his practice and how much it meant for the society then. 
But that was a time when the religion was new and fresh, before it had also become about power. Those crosses carved on the upright slabs on the monastic Cahir island are also from the start of Celtic Christianity. Eventually they led to the famous stone Celtic high crosses carved with fabulous imagery by stonemasons that date from five centuries later, which are also wonderful and I do enjoy them, but not in the same way. As with much that later developed in the Tibetan monasteries, their primary function was not about religious practice, but to impress and to attract pilgrims for support. Mount Kailash, however, has been too remote and inhospitable for developments like that. Past pilgrim accounts describe harrowingly difficult journeys to a romantically remote location where only a few monks lived permanently. Before Tibet closed to the outside world, the journey was only possible on foot or by horse, and expeditions took months. Even recent accounts involved travelling in jeeps that had to ford rivers, or riding with Tibetan pilgrims filling the backs of trucks that threw up a cloud of dust from the dirt tracks, meandering and crisscrossing through the desert. It was something only for the seriously committed. That notion had already been undermined for us, by the relative comfort of our little minibus driving on the new tarmac roads. But when we got to Mount Kailash, we found the Chinese had also built a modern visitor centre. It sits on the plain before the mountain, utterly incongruous, and not at all what we'd been led to expect. There was even an immense concrete billboard on a tall concrete stand announcing where we were. I'm afraid those iconic photographs of a remote and austere white mountain standing alone in a wide plain are no longer true. But at least you've now been warned. We weren't. The tourist complex had just been built and much of the visitor centre itself was still a shell, yet to be filled with interpretation panels and merchandising. At least we were spared that. We had to stop there to pay for our tickets. Yes, you also have to have a ticket now. While we waited, a Chinese woman came out from a small office with a thermos of hot water with several cups. She'd seen us through the glass door and taken pity. I guess that to anyone Chinese, combating the cold in Tibet with warm drinks would be very important, even in June. Everyone we saw in that complex was Chinese. The police, the people in that office, some officials standing outside. The only exception was a Tibetan man working round the back doing something menial. From there the empty land and road rose gently ahead to Darshan at the base of the mountain. 
At the time of Lama Govinda's visit, Darshan was just a place where pilgrims camped before undertaking the Kora. Even when Andrew and the lay people from Ajahn Sumedho's party were there, it only had a few wooden buildings and they stayed instead at the temple beside Lake Manasarova. Now there are modern hotel complexes, with new ones being built, cranes standing beside them and Tibetans toiling in shiny new plastic hard hats. As Dorje showed our papers at the police post beside a line of dilapidated wooden shops, loud Chinese pop music blared out from a building site and a strong wind blew rubbish along the dirt street ahead. It was the least appealing entrance to a holy site I'd ever seen. We couldn't afford the comfort of one of the new hotels. Instead, Dorji found us two dormitory rooms in a Tibetan pilgrim hostel down a side street. It was good enough. The rooms were moderately clean, although the one toilet across the dirt yard was not somewhere to linger. Once we'd settled, we assembled to discuss our start. We'd gained an extra day because the military in Toling had refused Dorje a pass to visit the Donka cave site with its fabulous murals. Our new plan had been to save that extra day for Lake Manasarova so we could spend more time there, after we'd circled Mount Kailash. But Ajahn Amro now suggested instead we take a day's rest at Darshan so that Apamado could recover. His migraines were getting worse and a day travelling in the minibus had been particularly difficult. So now we debated what to do, with the conversation going round and round in circles. I cringed inside at the idea of a whole day spent in Darshan, but had to accept it might be best for Apamado, who was looking very pained, but not wanting to put us out. Chris appeared horrified too, but was also trying to be reasonable. But then I asked Apamado directly, setting aside everyone else, what did he actually want to do himself? To everyone's surprise, he said he wanted to start in the morning. He'd found that exercise, although really difficult, could relieve the pain. So Chris and I went off to buy supplies for an early start. We found chocolate, sucking sweets, nuts and dried fruit, as well as several beggars and some other Westerners, possibly Russian, collecting their supplies for their Cora. So next morning our pilgrimage round Mount Kailash began. We set out with a porter carrying my pack crammed with all our sleeping bags. The rest of our belongings we'd put in the minibus to await our return. The driver saw us off, Dorje and the porter leading us through the few dirty streets, each of us with a small day pack on our bags, Ajahn Amro and I with our wooden walking staffs, the others with metal walking poles clicking on the ground. A wide, warm footpath then headed west around the mountain's base. 
I'd promised myself I'd keep within my capabilities so that I might enjoy the walk that day. I actually managed to keep up with the others initially, but only until the edge of town. Then I started to fade. Each time I stopped to regain my breath, leaning on my staff, the others pulled further ahead. But I was enjoying it. We were heading west. The Cora circles clockwise, so keeping the right shoulder to the mountain, which is respectful in Buddhism, and following a broad path skirting Mount Kailash's base and rising only slightly. Tibetan pilgrims passed me as I walked slowly along. Families, a father looking close to my age, but probably younger, with the youngest child on his back, even a grandmother in traditional clothes and a walking stick. The Tibetans had loose padded jackets, blankets, a variety of hats and all carried small sacks of sampa, the ground roasted barley which is Tibet's staple food, some slung on backs, others tied to waists. It was uplifting to walk with these simple poor people, even if I couldn't keep up even with the grandmother. A yak passed, laden with baggage, the owner behind whistling in occasional encouragement, his wife on a sweet white pony. The mountain beside us was obscured. The base of the cloud was just above the path ahead where it turned to enter a valley. But to my left, I could see across a vast ochre plain with a dark lake in the distance. Beyond the lake, the white Himalayan mountains were just a few clouds. As I walked on, my staff stepping out a slow but steady rhythm, more and more Tibetans passed me, many now cantering along on ponies. These were mostly single men, often with wide cowboy hats, but some were women. They were locals from Darshan, I surmised, hoping to give rides to the Indians we'd seen flying up from Nepal in the helicopter. But there were a surprisingly lot of them. A young lad, dressed in jeans and denim jacket, also passed on a motorbike, his girlfriend hanging on to his back. At the turn where the path headed up the valley, the others were waiting. I rested on a rock, but told Dorje to go on. I was fine, just taking it easy so as to enjoy it all, I assured him. I couldn't get lost, and we'd meet at the day's end. Beside my rock was a large cairn of stones. Many were money stones, carved with the sacred symbols of the mantra Om Mani Padmi Hum, an invocation containing the essence they say, of the Buddhist teachings. From here the path headed north, now gently descending as the valley floor rose to meet it. Where they met, the Tibetans on the ponies congregated in a large dusty flat area with Nissan huts nearby. This was as far as vehicles could drive on the dirt track that came up the valley and where the Kora proper was said to start. 
I could see the huge flagpole just beyond, which had been erected for Sakadawa, the celebration of the Buddha's enlightenment, for which we had been at Yalbang Monastery. It is said that the successful erection of the flagpole ensures a good year for Tibet. Lines of prayer flags, looking tiny from my vantage point, radiated out in all directions. I could hear the murmur of many voices, even at this distance. It was quite some crowd, and Tibetans on ponies were still passing me and trotting down the slope ahead. Then a modern blue coach appeared below, driving up the dirt road with a dust cloud in its wake, followed by another. As I continued down the path towards the resulting commotion, their honking echoed over the valley walls. From those coaches clambered Indian pilgrims, all in large nylon puffy jackets, as yet another two coaches appeared, driving up the track, followed by their dust cloud. There were far more Indian pilgrims than could have ever got here by the red and white helicopter. They must be coming from Kathmandu by coach, I realised, along the new tarmac road. That was the reason for all the Tibetans with ponies, and all that hotel building. There were going to be hundreds of them going round the mountain with us. The path took me past the coaches and through the middle of the now milling throng of Indian pilgrims, ponies and Tibetans. An Indian tour leader in front of the first coach bellowed out instructions in Hindi through a megaphone above the din of all the excited voices. The shouting of Tibetan horsemen looking for customers and the whinnying of their ponies. An extremely overweight young Indian woman was taking a photograph with her smartphone of her more moderately overweight female friends who were chatting excitedly. Alpine chuffs circled, screeching, dropping down to pick up scraps in their yellow beaks from the dusty floor, which was littered with dung, discarded food wrappers and drink cans. Just beyond the hubbub was a square stupa marking the start of the Kora. It had an arch gap through which the pilgrim steps. I'd intended stopping here to acknowledge my start of the Kora, as Roger had told us we should, maybe even doing his three full-length prostrations to show the seriousness of my commitment. But now I abandoned all that. I could only think of getting away from the bedlam behind me. I stepped through as the first of the Indian pilgrims started to circumambulate the stupa, holding lighted incense sticks before them, while two others on their knees started to prostrate to it. At least my start was honoured by them. <laughs> 